the perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. Welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson, Tom Fernelli, Danny Cannell, and Bud Elliott. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Bud Elliott. That's Tom Pernelli. That's Danny Cannell. I'm Chip Patterson. Uh, very excited to kick off another week here. We've got some spring games to look at. Uh, I don't know if you listeners knew, but we do have some Florida State expertise here. And Florida State was the big headline spring game of the weekend. Going to get into that. We got some breaking news uh, on the recruiting trail. Big shifts coming, at least in terms of the way these coaches and the prospects handle business. What does that mean for the rest of the summer, and what can we expect? And uh, a very fun offseason exercise as we will sit down and tell you who will be the next team to win its first title of the modern era. That means we're going to have to define the modern era, figure out our cut line, uh, figure out what programs are going to be the ones most well-positioned to be able to make a run at a college football playoff national championship? Will we have a, a first-time a winner, at least in terms of our modern era? How about, how about all these uh, first-time Masters winners, huh? What do we got? Like seven out of the last eight are first-time winners. The only one with Hideki Matsuyama, congratulations. The only one not being Tiger Woods in 2019. And of those seven, six of them, it was also their first major championship win. Huh? But... None of them were rookies as far as winning actual PGA tournaments, right? Correct. Like that, that uh, I was looking at some of the commonalities and it's like, you, you need to be a pretty experienced winner. You know, it's just, you, you may not have, have, have to actually won or played well at the Masters before. You right. also need to have played the, the course a couple of times, it seems. The, oh, are you trying to go ahead and get your 2022 like formula together? Get the prop market <laughs> on the process? They, they say course history matters at the Masters in a way that it doesn't really at any other tournament as far as like, you know, how you've done there. But I, I guess Hideki did have, what, a top five prior? Oh, he's had great finishes uh, at the Masters before. I think since mm -hmm. 2015, he's had multiple top tens, including uh, at least one top five. So the, the I mean, I, I call it the Rubik's Cube. You know, you, you got to figure out the moves that you're going to do. You got to figure out your angles. Um you know, Webb Simpson has talked about uh, how he started at Augusta being way too aggressive and thinking that he could bully it, and now he's had to dial it back, be a little bit more conservative, take what the course gives you, pretty good insight, and his finishes have improved over time. But that's for the First Cut podcast. Go and listen to say, it. You're going to talk like Man. wrestling and baseball next. What's going on? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that Braves call. Oh, my gosh. Um, what the hell? You know what? Yeah. That was – I saw yesterday, but I was watching different games. There was that – call at the end of the Braves game where they do the replay review. He's clearly out. Like he never even touched his own plate. He's tagged. They go to review. They called him safe. Then in another game, I'm watching a guy steal second base 
comes off the bag with his torso for like maybe a 16th of a second and the glove is still on him when he does it, they go to review, they call him out. <laughs> review, ladies and gentlemen. Reviews ruin sports. It has. They, they I'd have. rather have human error every time. I mean, that was, well, we're getting real derailed now, but that was like the theme of the entire weekend. In soccer, people were complaining about a couple review calls. In baseball, people were complaining about review calls. It's like, you all wanted this. Mm. Live with it. Yeah. I'm, I think that I'm on your side, Danny. I, I'm yeah. pretty sure. Like, I, again, I, I see in tennis, we've got the lasers, right? And it feels like we get it done quickly and we're able to just like very, very, uh, we're able to establish that. But it's an imperfect, uh, imperfect game pretty much across the board. It's pretty simple. Keep replay review for clearly defined rules. Mm-hmm. Anything that's a judgment call, you can't review it. You stick with the call. Mm. Uh, one of the games that I had my eyes on, in addition, I had a lot of screens going, uh, and you know, of course, was doing CBS Sports HQ for the Masters, uh, doing some live blogging as well. But that didn't mean that I, I didn't have a screen pulled up on ACC Network on Saturdays. The Florida State Seminoles took the field for their spring game. Um, so the the obviously the the number one talking point is going to be McKenzie Milton. What did we see McKenzie Milton do? He had a touchdown, had a couple good passes, and he ran. He did move his legs and ran. That was good. Like that's a big check mark. Um, I thought that defensively, Jermaine Johnson looked really, really, really good. And uh, and I'm obviously curious, Bud, Danny, Tom, if you want to jump in on this uh, as well, what were the the big thoughts and takeaways? Maybe give it to me on two levels because there's like the the sort of national checklist. Uh, but then also, what do you think the fans are feeling uh, coming out of this? Because you know. Spring's always positive, but it does feel like there is some some positive momentum and the, you know, whether it's a 24-7 sports or, or just sort of general fan sentiment, feels like people are coming out of Saturday with a little bit encouraged, maybe not about uh, immediately, like we're just going to be able to the, turn the key and this thing's going to be right back to where we want it to be, but it does seem like things are moving in the right direction. I think Florida State fans are, and I think they should be, cautiously optimistic like i think they're smart about this i think they're saying all right we've been battered we've been bruised like it's been a rough go of it i think it's going to be better but i don't see many fans saying oh we're going to dominate the acc this year which i think is probably a smart way to go into it i mean i go back to the optimism that was right before willie taggart's first game virginia tech prime time, entire country watching. It's maybe the best pregame atmosphere that Florida State has ever seen. Like he's got a DJ out there. It, the place was rocking. And then the product on the field was not. Yeah. <laughs> so it kind of came back to reality. So like from that offseason of optimism, when fans probably did think we could win a national championship to now after a couple years later, coaching change, COVID, you know, some, some less than stellar seasons. Now I think they're a little bit more realistic on what a turnaround looks like and how long it could take. You mentioned Mackenzie Milton. He was awesome. But I don't, I, I've kind of expected him to be that, having talked to the staff, having heard the health, having seen his history of success, leadership, ability to pick up the offense. The offense in general, whether it was him or Jordan Travis, I like the explosive nature I saw of it. And probably bigger to me was, yes, Mackenzie Milton was throwing the ball and Jordan Travis was throwing the ball, but the receivers were making plays. They had a couple freshmen who looked really good or were starting to jump. And you mentioned Jermaine Johnson, like one of the players in the transfer portal who came in there. They had some quarterback pressures. So 
I thought collectively Mackenzie Milton stole the headlines, which you're going to do as a quarterback. But I thought there were other signs of life. The run game looked solid, like that should have Florida State fans cautiously optimistic. Yeah, I, I, I think Danny is exactly right here. Um, I, I went on the Knowles 24-7 message board, and I really didn't see people thinking, hey, eight and four, nine and three, right? Most people who've been following spring practices, they're still like, hey, I think this team can probably make a bowl. And that's kind of where I'm at, like somewhere between five and seven and six and six, right? They have a really difficult schedule. They draw both Notre Dame and Florida in the non-conference. Their, their, their cross-divisional draw has Miami and North Carolina from the coastal. So like their schedule is, is going to be really brutal. Milton really was not that great this spring. His spring game was the best day he had had in spring, I, I was told. Nice. So that's a really positive sign that he keeps improving, understanding the system more and more. And now I think they have two quarterbacks that they can really win with. And, and my guess here is that they will probably play both, assuming both stay on the roster, right? Jordan Travis was their best offense last year. We really haven't seen you know, them be able to move the football without the serious threat of quarterback mobility. So I, I do think Travis is going to have to be involved in this you know, quite a bit. Um, offensive line-wise, I think the starters continue to, to make progress, uh, but you also, I think, really have problems if you get down past like number six or number seven there because a lot of those guys just don't belong on a power five roster right now and haven't been developed. And it's just like, if, if, if they get offensive line injuries, they could go three and nine mm-hmm. easy. Like there's only one game I would pick them to win in the ACC. If they lose a couple offensive line, that would be Syracuse, but their but upside I think this, is a bowl game. How can this still be the position that they're in? Like, because you I fired mean, a guy after just two years. Yeah. This is the, if you fire somebody after a really short period in the early signing period era, you're signing yourself up as an administration for a long-term rebuild, period. That kind of attrition with, with, with the portal, with how hard it is to, to recruit you know, when you're basically that year zero class because you only have a couple of weeks to put it together, it screws you for a while. They're getting better with the starters, which is better than I could say two or three years ago, but they just don't have the depth there yet behind them. Isn't that part of the Jordan Travis proposal too? Yeah. That if your offensive <laughs> line is going to stink – or, I mean, not stink, you say they're improving, but if your offensive line is a weakness or a liability, you cannot leave McKenzie Milton back there for 80 snaps a game. He does have a super quick release, though. Like, that that's the saving grace. His, his arm strength is nothing special, right? It doesn't pop. But the quickness with which he gets rid of the ball, once he figures out who to throw it to, is pretty good. I think that's the thing that's been improving this spring is, okay, understanding Mike Norvell's offense. It is different than what they ran at UCF knowing where to go with it. And once he knows where to go with it, the ball's out quick. And just getting that feel back too, because it's been so long since he'd been in that kind of situation. So yeah, it's, I mean, I feel like the approach you guys are taking with the Florida state spring games, the approach anybody should take with any spring game is they don't really tell you anything. (laughs) Like you can get yourself really worked up about, Oh, wow. We look great in the spring, but just watch it. See, just I, I watch him just get an idea of what teams are doing, what changes they're making, particularly if there's new coaching staffs available. And the only reason I was interested in the Florida State spring game this year was because getting to see Milton play. And it's just good to see him out there looking healthy and looking capable. Really, for me, that's the only thing I'm going to take away from a Florida State spring game this year. The other thing was the stands. They, they absolutely knocked it out of the park recruiting wise. They, I think they had, what, 11 five stars on campus between the 22 and 23 classes combined. They were the only Power 5 team in about a five-hour radius that was having a spring game on Saturday. So at least that you know, the fans could attend. Um, really smart work there, I would say, by the staff this offseason to, to make all the scrimmages open to the public, even if they didn't make it like super known. 
because you know they did make it known to that is part of the public recruits and so mm. they, they came quite a bit and they're trying to make up for lost time that they didn't really have you know, during the pandemic recruiting coordinator travis hunter was on it right yeah, seriously i mean like because he's uh <clears throat> he's holding court out in front of the bowden statue they're yeah they're that's what they I was, had a huge turnout. He's he has his own media availability. The man he is does. a recruit, and he's like, he's like yeah, yeah. Uh, Travis Hunter will be meeting with the media to discuss the uh, upcoming class at uh, two p.m. If you would like to uh, to go and uh, and meet with them there, he would start for them right now if he could skip his senior year of high school. Jeez, that's, there's no doubt in my mind on that. <laughs> they don't have anybody on the team who's near the athlete he is. Um, UCF uh, had its spring game first uh, with Gus Malzahn. I mean. I'm, I'm being mean, but the offense looked pretty putt-putt. I saw tosses back to the quarterback. I saw the wild rhino with the defensive tackle. And no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Spring games are where you do that. It's for the fans. Uh, NC State also got Devin Leary back. There were a lot of uh, NC State starters that did not play in this game. Justin Houston went down with a little bit of a foot injury, but the staff seemed to be uh, somewhat positive about the way things were going. Big headline there. I mean, shocker. We're talking about quarterbacks. But Devin Leary, after suffering a fractured fibula back in October, him being full go, uh, looking healthy, had a rough start uh, at the beginning of the game, but then seemed to uh, to catch fire. In, any uh, any other general sort of thoughts on the uh, the spring games of the weekend? We'll dedicate a little bit of time each Monday. And as the the nature of these games and some of the programs where we've got more burning questions, it was kind of a thin Saturday. But uh, anything stand out or any any questions that y'all had from anyone that was in action? No, I mean, like you you mentioned Gus taking over UCF, so that was something worth paying attention to for a little bit. But the, the difference is, Chip, like you mentioned, spring games are when you know you you pull out those kind of plays just for fun and for the fans. But that just looked like every other Gus game to me. I don't, I don't know. We're so mean. Uh, you know right. what made the biggest the bigger deal out of that game was the fact that players had Twitter handles on their yeah. jerseys, which almost everybody was like, "Yay, build your brand." I think it's great for spring, but but I if I was advising a player, I would be like, do not advertise where disgruntled fans or gamblers, <laughs> more importantly, who are ticked off and drunk can like because they're going to tweet at you and they might not find you. But if it's right there in their face and it says at underscore Dylan Gabriel. They're going to go let you have it if you miss a throw. Like, do you really want to open yourselves up to that? I know we want to make money and name, image, and likeness. I think it's fun in the spring, kind of like the trick plays, but just buyer beware if you're going to do that in the fall when it starts the season. Okay, uh, second level joke on that because the first level was right away when everyone said, why don't they put their Venmo handles on there? You know, saw this from several people. Uh, and, and I'm going to actually say don't do that because in the same way that you can pay, you can also charge. And I don't want those drunk disgruntled betters to be charging these uh, players, sending them uh, payment requests for all of their lost bets. But yeah. Could you imagine the I, subject lines in there if they were Venmoing them? Like, you know, great cover, backdoor cover, you know, jing, little yeah. emojis, dollar bags. <laughs> Love it. Uh, I just, I'm having visions of like, decade from now where we're like it's all about the name on the front of the jersey not the handle on the back <laughs> <laughs> um all right another piece of breaking news before we get into our our big national title type discussion 
The Dennis Dodd reported over the weekend that the long recruiting dead period, which has been in place since March 2020, since the pandemic first hit, uh, it is expected to be lifted June 1. Again, that is going to be discussed this week. There's some big NCAA meetings coming up uh, for the the legislation to be able to uh, pass. So, you know, what what does that mean? You know, what does, uh, what is the expectation then for the dead period to be lifted? Like, do you think that there is, uh, there's any advantages or do you think that, you know, how have things shifted basically, uh, in the, you know, pandemic recruiting era, obviously you have not been able to have, uh, the official visits with kids coming to campus. So they don't get to have that full campus experience. The coaches haven't been able to go and get their eyes and be able to really get that in-person connection that you sometimes do in the story. Uh, Florida coach Dan Mullen actually bragged about how good he feels with zoom recruiting. Feels like he said he's gotten really efficient with Zoom. You know, he's saying that being able to have these conversations, it's a, it's a skill that he's developed. But he also pointed out that for Florida in particular, not being able to have those official visits in November and December when you're bringing kids in from all over the country, from all these cold places and being like, hey, you want to see what it's like in November down here in Florida? You know, the, uh, there's definitely advantages uh, to that as well, especially from a, a regional standpoint. So with the recruiting dead period reportedly uh, getting lifted June 1, again, that's according to our own Dennis Dodd, uh, what, what's sort of the expectation about what are some of the things that are going to happen next? Oh, there are going to be so many visits. So many official visits. Because, like, I mean, a lot of coaching staffs have already started scheduling visits for that area. Like, they've been scheduling it in anticipation of this coming. So, my reaction is a, a, first of all, I'm excited about it just from the selfish standpoint that we're getting back to a place where schools can have kids come on campus. That just means better things for the you know country as a whole in that it's opening up everywhere. So that's another good sign that we're just getting back to normal life more than anything. But two, I think it's huge for coaching staffs and I think it's huge for recruits because it's been like Dan Mullen might be comfortable with the zoom recruiting and I'm sure, you know, you're comfortable talking to somebody on zoom. We're talking to each other on it right now. You know, I'm comfortable. I don't know about you guys, but I think it's still very important to be able to get on a campus, to meet with the coaches in person, to see the campus for yourself. And I think that one of the big things from last year and Bud, I'm sure you could talk a lot better about this than I can. But it's just, it was so much more difficult to recruit last year because you're not really getting a chance to see the kids live. You're not really getting a chance to meet them and know them. They're not getting a chance to know you and your campus. So with all this starting to open up, I think we're getting back to more of a normal recruiting kind of situation, which is better for everyone involved, especially when there's jobs on the line based on how you recruit. Yeah. How do you uh, so I, I, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, I assume we're talking about the, uh, the, the, the Dodd thing. Yeah. The, the report. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. My, my internet shut down and my zoom cameras being all weird. Great. Uh, but, um, I, I do think it's a really good thing um, it, for coaches. I, I heard, I heard, um, I heard Tom saying that Dan Mullen was, was fine with, with the Zoom recruiting. I'm, I'm sure Florida fans who hate his recruiting will make all kinds of jokes about how he, he certainly is fine. Not having to recruit, you know, like normal. Um, maybe I'm not the guy that should make that joke given the FSU ties, but, uh, I'm sure they'll make it for me, you know, and granted their main rival is of course FSU who has not been able to have kids on campus, you know, in, in any kind of official capacity for like 18 months so you know um i think this is a really good thing for the athletes though to be able to get back out and actually see schools interact i mean it it absolutely sucks having to make a college decision 
over Zoom, right? Like that's that's not cool. And this is a really good thing. Um, additionally, I, I think you know you're going to see big schools partner with smaller schools on some satellite camps to be able to see a lot of kids at once to try to catch up on, on you know maybe some of the eval times that they've not been able to have. So I would look for some big time satellite camps in June. Um, and this is, I, it's just good to get back to normal, right? 22 is still behind schedule. I think 23, we can k- kind of get back to a, a normal schedule as far as not the year 2023, but the you know, 23 class. recruiting class. Yeah. I think it's critical to get that personal interaction. Uh, Ryan Day had a quote said, when June 1st comes here, if they open it up, it's going to be like Disneyland opening for the first time. You know, like there is going to be a mad rush. But I do think more important than how many five stars do you have is do those five stars fit your program, your culture, what you want to bring in, like the type of player you want. And you can get some feel for it via Zoom, but I don't think it's anywhere near what you can glean from um, seeing the way a kid interacts with some of his friends. Maybe he's there with his mom or his dad or his brother or sibling. And how does he interact with the other recruits? You kind of see who's the alpha, who's a, who's kind of the clown, who's like, you get to learn from watching somebody's body language and seeing what they're like in person. And there's only one way to do that. You cannot do that via zoom. So I think it's, I think in as much as Dan Mullen, I'm sure he's selling that, Hey, I like it. I'm sure he's trying to spin it positive. Any coach in their right mind would say, let's get back as soon as we can back to the way things were so that you can get your hands on guys so right. you can see them with those interactions. Before we 100%. start dragging Dan Mullen, I, I do need to offer some more quotes from him so we don't make it look like he just hates recruiting <laughs> he in wants person. He to go back to Zoom full yeah, time. No, yeah, no. So uh, <laughs> number one, Florida already – has official visits scheduled for every single weekend in June in anticipation of June 1. So they're already getting to work. And this is another quote from Dan Mullen from the story. He says, as soon as it expires, it being the dead period, there will be pandemonium. It will be waves upon waves upon waves upon waves. That is a quote that is many waves. There will be waves upon waves upon waves upon waves of kids coming to visit. So he is dialed in. I think he was just trying to say that he felt like the Florida staff had adapted, right? He was just trying to say, like, I felt like we did a good job of adapting to the situation. They will, without a doubt, be uh, trying to take advantage of this. The one last thing, so the, the visits are big. The camps are another part of this. And I, I feel like camps are another situation where you get to tell about the, like the great point about the alpha and the clown and being able to, and the satellite camps, I guess, is going to be another way that you're able to just see a whole bunch of kids at once. That's where you find somebody who might not be a five-star and you might be like, man, I, I really like the way that guy competes. I really like uh, the way that that guy can fit. Um, like I, Am, am I wrong? Am I overvaluing what some of these uh, what some of these camps can do in terms of players being recognized, but also coaching staffs getting a, a good feel for the way that some of these uh, players take care of business, like the way they practice, the way they go through drills and things like that. I, I don't think you're wrong at all, Chip. I, I, I think you're exactly right. Um, you know, ultimately, I think we're going to see tremendous attrition levels out of the class of 2021 that just signed. You're signing, you're having schools sign classes where, you know, 50%, 70% of the class never visited the campus, doesn't really know what they're getting into. Like Danny said, don't know how they interact, don't know how they take coaching. You know, it's all going to be very interesting. I, I, I think it's, it's, it's vital to, you know, have those and get back. 
The pressure continues to mount as the world's top teams compete for soccer's most coveted trophy. The Champions League is down to the final eight, and you can stream every match live on Paramount Plus as they cut the field to four teams following this week's second leg of the quarterfinal stage. Don't miss a minute of world-class soccer, including Paris Saint-Germain against Bayern Munich and Real Madrid against Liverpool. Paramount Plus, live sports, breaking news, and a mountain of entertainment. Go to ParamountPlus.com to try it for free. Again, you do not want to miss it. It's the second leg of the quarterfinal action in the Champions League, and you can stream it live on Paramount Plus. Go to ParamountPlus.com to try it for free. Coming up on the other side... Who will be the first team or the next team to win its first national championship of the modern era? we got to figure out what the modern era is, and we've got to figure out who those teams are. We've got some suggestions, and we'll break it down next. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, so, you know, Princeton and Yale... According to the wiki, they got the most national championships in college football. And they absolutely were running it back in the late 1800s, early 20th century. And, you know, we start to see some of the program. You know, Notre Dame gets in there. Michigan starts to get in there once we get into the 20s. And and we, we absolutely agree that the war era years are you know, a little bit difficult, even though you've got some, you know, Alabamas and Ohio States popping up in there. So I, I guess our first part of the question, before we get to naming our teams, I've got uh, about four here. And uh, I imagine that we'll, we'll probably end up hovering around some of the same. What, what do we think is the modern era? Because um, I think that in terms of significant moments in college football, for resources, the 1984 Supreme Court decision that allowed some of these schools and conferences to be able to uh, go out and negotiate their own television deals. That changed the money in college football. Now, it probably took a little bit of time before we really got to see the the impact of that financially being poured into these uh, programs. So so may, maybe it's somewhere around the, the mid-1980s. But we've also got uh, changes in the number of scholarships that uh, these schools can give out because you know, there was a time what isn't it Nebraska like the old Tom Osborne Nebraska you have like 130 players or something like that you know just insane depth like a billion and, players yeah yeah once we start to actually put guys in, on the swim team and the bowling yeah. team that maybe never <laughs> swam or bowled 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once we started to actually put some, you know, restrictions on, on the roster, you know, that, that changes things uh, from a competitive standpoint. So before we unveil uh, some of our picks for the teams or programs that are going to be winning their first national championship of the modern era uh, here in the near future, I guess, uh, I wanted to, where do you all circle as the, the turning point that connects both what we know now, the college football playoff, maybe you know the BCS too. Uh, where's that line where you say that that year or this line is where I would say that's a different era of college football? See, I I think there's ways you can go about it. We'll, we'll talk about like the rule changes, the scholarship limits, all that kind of stuff. Chip, you mentioned when schools were allowed to negotiate television contracts. For me. And what makes it difficult is there's no real solid line of when this happened. So it's a gray area. So I think it's better to go off those rules. But for me, the modern era to me is when cable television really took college football to the next level in that every single game, every single week is on television. Because before that, in the earlier days, not too long ago, when it was just, you know, a couple games per week were on like, you know, your ABCs, your NBCs, your CBSs, before like ESPN really became what it is with college football, you'd see maybe three or four games a week. So you'd see the same teams over and over again. And that's like, that's why Oklahoma, Nebraska, schools like that all had huge recruiting advantages because every week kids at home were seeing them on TV. So that was a draw. Now that everybody's on TV, it's kind of equaled the playing field a little bit. So we're in an era where it's going to be about how well you recruit. And it's also the area that you live in. So for me, that's more of the modern era, but I don't think that's very easy to define. I think chips idea of, of 1992, which is when we had the, what the, the bowl coalition, mm-hmm. I, I think makes a lot of sense here. What also happened in 92 was they passed the rule on getting down to 85 scholarships. Now, it didn't actually fully take into effect in, in the 94, but I, I'm fairly in on kind of the 92 range. That's, you know, it's not quite three decades, but it's it's pretty close. Everything was, you know, color TV. You had, I mean, like, like you know, big-time games on, on, on national television. They, they weren't, you know, tape-delayed anymore. Um, you know, that you, you get a lot of schools in there. And just, for example, like, to me, you know, Pitt winning doesn't feel – modern era right washington winning feel you know georgia tech colorado like that doesn't really feel super modern era but you know some like nebraska michigan they do to me danny cannell feels feels modern era danny cannell is definitely (laughs) modern era yeah 92 right exactly 92 yeah although it was funny you mentioned about the difference in tv contracts because i remember the recruiting pitch at the tier schools that I was looking to was we're going to play four games on national TV and they could have them and they pitted them on there and they had them on the schedule. And that was a selling point. So there was a difference because now nobody even mentions it because you're going to be any power five school. Every game is going to be on national TV somewhere. You can find it, but it's crazy how things have changed that way. That was a selling point. Now it's NFL players drafted, whatever it is now as soon. It's going to be, our players have made this much money, name, image, and likeness. Like that's going to be the next one. It's just the way the game evolves. But I love 92 for me. That was my freshman year. So let's roll with 92. That's perfect. I am he's the modern man. He's era. a modern man. <laughs> it all started with me. Uh, since 1992, only 14 schools 
have won national championships. Those schools, again, the national champions since 1992, that would be Alabama, that would be Auburn, that would be Clemson, Florida, Florida State, LSU, Miami, Michigan, Nebraska, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, and USC. Again, that's only 14, and of that's 29 uh, national championships, uh, seven of them by Alabama during that time. So uh, I've got a couple here. How uh, do, do we want to throw it around the horn? Do we want to bring up, bring up a school and, uh, and, and debate the merits? How do you guys want to attack this? I, th- I think we should. somebody should nominate a school and then we debate it. Okay. You I'll- want to draft it? there's not it's a pretty thin list okay yeah it's like two rounds okay. okay so the georgia bulldogs they've got a national championship in 1980 they have uh recruiting that is at a level with the at you know alabama and ohio state two teams that have not only won national championships during this era but have won multiple national championships during the era it is a program whose competitiveness whose um you know recruiting prowess and just the general passion, resources, the way that we look at the Georgia football program is in higher regard than the trophy case. Um, you know, that 1980 season, that seems to carry a whole lot of weight. Herschel Walker carries a whole lot of weight for Georgia. And as we continue to move a little bit further past it, you now we can point to uh, the 2012 SEC championship game where four yards from you know winning that game going on to play in the BCS National Championship we can look at 13 nothing against Alabama at halftime or the fact that it was that Tua had taken a sack he had lost 16 yards they'd gotten out of field goal range that was it looked like it was a wrap and Georgia was going to finally be able to get it done so for all these different details that we have you know does it fall into this category of Georgia heartbreak because it hasn't happened again because they've been at this high level but not been able to win the national championship I just I think that Georgia is uh probably one of the easiest calls to make but at the same time it does give you chills a little bit just kind of wondering why it hasn't happened I mean it's hard to win a national title (laughs) I think that much is clear. I I do think that they are an obvious candidate for this topic, though, because, yeah, they've been close in recent years. They got to the title game a few years ago. They live in the right part of the country as far as having a natural advantage with the amount of talent that surrounds them in in the state of Georgia. They're in the right conference in that the SEC has that kind of cachet where if you win the SEC, there's no question that you're getting into the college football playoff. And we've seen you don't even have to win the SEC to get into the college football playoff. And you're in, if you're breaking the, the breaking it down, you're in the right part of the SEC in that you're in the East and there's a little bit of a clearer path to Atlanta than there probably is in the West. So I think that when you look at all that, you look at the way that they've recruited, Obviously, they're a very strong candidate. The question is, will Kirby get out of the way at some point and let the offense do what the offense needs to do? Don't you think they're the, like Bud was saying, draft? Don't you think we all probably would have drafted if, you know, or if there was a Vegas odds maker that would be, Georgia would probably be minus 170. (laughs) He would be a strong favorite of who would be the next. So, yeah, I think for all those reasons, which you guys gave, it's clearly 
the team that's in the driver's spot. I think you have to kind of think about the SEC from the advantage. If we're still in the four teams, they're the conference that has had two. Um, you don't, you know, because I think the natural inclination is to say, well, what about Bama? They could get in with Bama and they could, they were that close to beating them before. So I think Georgia is hands down the, the leader in the clubhouse, the team that has the best chance to get it. And yet, at the same time, it's probably the toughest one because you do have to go through the SEC. But to, in my mind, it's the advantage of getting access before a one-loss Pac-12 champion that they could get as a one-loss runner-up in the conference. You know, So I think that's why Georgia has to be in the leader. The leader. They sort of feel like the Dodgers to me, right? Like the Dodgers just now won it last year, but they, they've been clearly – you know, one of the two or three best teams in baseball for about a half decade now. And even before that, we knew, you know, that, that it was coming because of how well they had been signing players, you know, internationally and, and drafting. That's sort of Georgia for me, right? Like you don't sign this level of talent, this like super elite echelon of talent and not contend for, for a national title because they, you know, they have contended. They just haven't actually, you know, managed to take it home. And I think Georgia has also, you know, been closer. Chip, Chip mentioned 2012. There was also one of those might have been Rick's third or fourth teams that just had some really hard luck losses, but they were clearly, if you look at like the power ratings, you know, they were national championship caliber in that decade too. I mean, in the nineties, they kind of took off, but or, you know, like not took off as in risen, but they, they kind of just took it off. Uh, but I, I think Georgia is clearly the, the number one for me here. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and uh, offer another nomination for the committee. Penn state. Ooh. Last national championship was 1986. They have been under James Franklin prior to last season, uh, incredibly competitive and among the most successful programs. Penn State is among the most successful programs of the college football playoff era without a college football playoff appearance. How how close is Penn State? And if we want a Big Ten foil, because Michigan already has uh, you know a national championship in this modern era, um, Nebraska has a national championship in this modern era that I don't know if anyone's nominating the Cornhuskers right now, but like Penn state and Wisconsin, I think that one of those you look at Penn state and especially in recent years, you could say that the, the recruiting and some of the talent advantages might've been at Penn state, but we've been talking about how Wisconsin's been doing a great job on the recruiting trail. And Paul Chris has done a good job of leveling up there. So I guess for the purposes of debate, how would you what what order would you pick Penn State and Wisconsin? Wisconsin, by the way, I don't think has a national championship, period. Even if, if it does, it's from like I don't think so at all. Like no. Pre World War II type, yeah. type stuff. Yeah. Um, so what what do we think? Penn State and Wisconsin. Yeah. Last claimed national title nineteen forty two. Yep. The war. Uh <laughs> um, I think Penn State should be ahead of Wisconsin based on, you know, the, like, but the blue chip ratio because Penn state has recruited better than Wisconsin. So if we're basing it on that, yeah. But I also think that you could make the strong argument that Penn state's got a much more difficult path because Penn state has to beat Ohio state every season. It's got to beat Michigan every season just to get to the big 10 title game. And then it's got to win the big 10 and then it has a chance and it has to do all that without possibly screwing up against somebody else. Whereas Wisconsin, Wisconsin can win the big 10 without playing Ohio state. 
Like they could win the West, go undefeated, and then it's a one of the crazy years in the East where we almost had it last year, where you know Indiana represents the East, or Michigan, or Penn State represents the East, and they don't actually have to face the Buckeyes, and then they can win the Big Ten title, and then they're if they're like an undefeated Big Ten champion, it's difficult to see the committee leaving them out of the playoffs. So it depends on how you want to look at it. It's just once you get to the playoff, I would have a lot more faith in a Penn state team to win two games than I would a Wisconsin team. So because of that, I would rank Penn state ahead of Wisconsin, but I don't think it's like that clear either. Like you bring up Penn state as the second team of the teams that we're probably going to talk about. I don't think I would have Penn state at number two in my rankings as far as most likely to do it. I, would agree I was that. thinking the same thing. Uh, and I, I kind of went through and by conferences went and picked like the first pick from each conference when I was looking at them and Penn state wasn't the one that jumped off the board from the big 10. Although chip, I think you bring up some really good points of why they could be um, the, the primary, like bud was talking about the Dodgers, um, how the Georgia could be the Dodgers. I almost feel like Penn State could be the Clemson. Like, because if you look at Dabo's records before when Florida State was winning everything, they were kind of knocking on the door. And, you know, then once he got one, like, think about how differently we would think about James Franklin if he had a championship to his name. Like, all of a sudden, he would vault that program. I mean, three 11 win seasons in his time there is pretty remarkable. Um, I went with Wisconsin for the same reason that Chip did or uh, that uh, Tom did when you're talking about, again, access. Can you get the opportunity to get in the playoff? And then once you're there, so the easiest access would be playing in the other division, getting to there and only even they're having to beat them once or not play them at all, as Tom was saying. And I do think that Wisconsin is that program, but I do wonder in that conversation, and you guys can fill me on this more than I know, because we always talk about how many four and five star recruits you have to have. There's almost a formula that you have to have X amount of four and five stars. Does Wisconsin have those types of players to put them in this conversation ahead of Penn state or Michigan, who I would imagine have recruited better over the last five to 10 years. Danny, that's a great segue. Cause there actually <laughs> is a formula. It's um, called the so blue chip I, I, ratio. <laughs> Yeah. yeah I, so I, I came up with this back in, I, I think, 2009. And it's it's really broad. It encapsulates a lot of teams, but like I, I, I do it purposely. So just to include everybody who has a, an actual shot. You just need to sign more four and five stars than two and three stars over the prior four classes. Right. It's just, you know, hey, more blue chips than non blue chips. That's your blue chip ratio. Now, in recent years, we've seen you know, the teams that win it have a really high blue chip ratio. And that that's probably just a, a bit of a trend. I don't know if it's going to be a hard and fast rule all the time. Like Bama's up there at like 80%, whereas in the past we've seen some teams like the Clemson-Deshaun team was like a 51% team. I think Penn State fits into that Clemson model, like Danny said, though, and they do out-recruit Wisconsin by a good amount, at least over the last couple of years. Even though we've praised Wisconsin for, you know, upping their recruiting, they're not quite on that Penn State level, you know, consistently yet. Um, to me, Penn State is a team I would not have had them second on my, on my list. Not saying Chip Day, just threw them out second to discuss. Uh, if they got a special quarterback, they could win it without having a Bama, Ohio State, Georgia level roster. And I think that is also kind of what Clemson did. Mm-hmm. Now, Clemson had some NFL guys at other positions, but they didn't have NFL guys at every position. They had you know a couple NFL guys, defensive line, receiver, and then they had Deshaun Watson, who was really, really good. I think Penn State fits that model. I, I would have them over Wisconsin because while the path 
to the playoff is better. We have seen that teams that recruit at the Wisconsin level or lower get absolutely smoked when, when they actually get into the playoff. And you have to win two playoff games. So that's unlikely. That's your Michigan State-Washington example, yeah, which unfortunately exactly. they both played Alabama teams, but it's also the it's, – it's what we have from our small sample size. Tom, who would you yep. have – you mentioned, who would you have as uh, number two behind Georgia on your list? Notre Dame. Mm, they've been there. I mean, if it's – you look at the situation, I, I know we like to think of Notre Dame as just a bunch of overrated has-beens, but how many other teams have – been to the playoff or played in a BCS championship game three times in the last decade that haven't won it at some point. Like Florida, Notre Dame played for the BCS title in 2012, and it's been to the playoff twice in the last three years. So clearly, it's getting the opportunity. Whether it'll be able to capitalize on that opportunity, I don't know. But we have seen a you know concerted effort since getting their butts destroyed by Alabama in that 2012 game, Brian Kelly has kind of stepped up the recruiting game and we're seeing Notre Dame start to amass the kind of talent that you need to compete in those games. And we, you know, and I don't know if they're really ever going to be on that Clemson Alabama kind of level where they're able to compete with them on a regular basis, but they are moving close. And I think that when you look at it, they are one of the teams that if we're being honest with ourselves is best poised to win a national title next if it's not one of the teams that already has talking about access they don't even have to win a conference right i mean and they have the brand of notre dame which i it's always a, a point of contention when we talk about making the selection does notre dame is a is, you know is that why they got in over texas a&m all those different discussions but it does help like we know that and the fact that they have been this close they've been consistently winning um they were my second choice after Georgia as well. Just because, like, you want to see teams that have been there and feel like they're knocking on the door. And I think Notre Dame is that team. They know what they are missing. Um, you know, kind of like Oklahoma, and I know they've got the championships and they're not in this succession, but they're trying to address the defensive side of the ball and trying to evolve so they can take the next step. Notre Dame's doing the same thing. So they're trying to address some of their deficiencies and why they haven't been able to get to that next level too. Yeah, and I, I think their roster is is better than, than Penn State's roster, um, mm-hmm. and and you know quarterback has really been their mm-hmm. biggest issue. I mean, Ian Book was fine to, to do what they did, but he's not fine to to win you a national title. There have only been five teams that have been to multiple college football playoffs, and Notre Dame is one of them: Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Notre Dame. That's it. That's the list. That's, it? That's uh, for multiple I- college football playoffs. Not Georgia? No. They've only got the one. One. Okay, right. They played in two games, but one, one playoff. Right. Yeah. For multiple, with 2018 and uh, 2020, Notre Dame is only, they've got two, and then it's a jump up to Oklahoma and Ohio State with four, Clemson and Alabama with six each. So who else is on the list? Is anybody going to take a stab at, is Texas A&M? They're number four on my list, yes. Okay. What's ahead of Penn State. Ahead of uh, daggone. <laughs> no love for yeah, the Nittany I, Lions. I mean, I, I think that it's similar. They're in a similar situation as Penn State in that they have a very difficult path because, like, as Penn State has the Ohio State behemoth in its own division, Texas AM's got to deal with Alabama in its own division, but it also has to deal with LSU, Auburn. You know, it's it's a very difficult path out of the SEC West, but 
Jimbo's taken over. We've seen the recruiting really take the kind of step forwards that you need to see for him to be considered this kind of contender. Uh, Jimbo has won a national title before, so he knows how to get there. Whether he can adapt or not will remain to be seen, but Texas A&M was very close to just making the playoff this year. So the Aggies, I think, are somebody you have to consider. It's just like I said, I, I would. there's another team that we haven't mentioned that I would have ahead of them because I think that they're in the similar situation but with a much clearer path. And then obviously Notre Dame and Georgia. So I would have A&M at fourth. I, I would agree with that. I, I think A&M has shown the ability to recruit both to win the West if they get the right quarterback and then also you know, given Jimbo's experience, I think they, they get difference makers on the defensive line. You know, we'll see if they can develop some receivers there or a quarterback. But like in theory, I, I think they absolutely belong on this list, you know, pretty high. And keep in mind, like, are any of these teams super likely to win it? Like, I would, the only team that I would bet is like going to win one in the next decade, like more likely than not, uh, that we're going to mention is Georgia. Georgia. The rest of them, I would, yeah. I would probably bet no, but they're still more likely than others because it's really hard to yeah. win a national title. <laughs> exactly. You know, What's it, it's it's a common theme I think with all these pro is like a quarterback away, you know, mm -hmm. which shows you why they're all you know trying to recruit as many five stars as they can, trying to get that difference maker in there. Um, my team, I'll, so I'll go next next one up. I'd say Oregon. Mm -hmm. uh, That's my they were my team from the Pac-12. They feel like so close. Access to get there, I it's is challenging right now. But I feel like at some point they're either going to expand and make it automatic. But even before then, I do feel like at some point you're going to give them like maybe this year, maybe they go to Columbus and maybe they can And even if they lose the game, if they lose close at some point, you feel like the committee's got to say, all right, dang, it, it's pac 12. We've left them out so many times. Like we're, we say we reward scheduling, like let's just throw them a bone, you know? And then you get in and it's like, you're there. Um, and with the kind of when we did our Pac-12 previews, to look around and USC looks pretty, you know, well positioned. But there's some really there's some average to good teams, which is good. Like there's a good depth, but there's no great team. And I think Oregon's poised to take that. And it wasn't that long ago, you know, within the last decade, they were knocking on the door every single year of getting a national championship. So I would say Oregon for me is a team that I think is probably in my top four of teams I would select here. You would say yeah. ahead of Texas A&M? They'd probably be like on a level playing field for different reasons. Yeah. Yeah, my my, my top five is Georgia, Notre Dame, Oregon, A&M, Penn State. But just from a fun narrative perspective, how hilarious would it be, Chip? Wouldn't it be hilarious if Larry Scott announces he's stepping down and then the Pac-12 has a great NCAA tournament run and then Oregon reaches the college football playoff? That'd be great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Also, all those sweet six. Although he'd probably teams. have some bonus left over, like he would get some five million dollar bonus for the Pac-12 success. So I don't know if I want that to happen. <laughs> um, yeah, no national championships in Oregon's football history. Uh, Texas A&M, who we just mentioned, last national title, nineteen thirty nine. Weird, man. Like I, Barton yelled at me one time because I just uh, put up the like, no, Texas A&M's not going to win. He was like, you can't say that. They're so close. I was like, no, show me. They've been close before. They're, they had great coaches. Texas A&M has had Hall of Fame coaches. No national Barton, titles. Barton gets really sensitive when you start proclaiming football programs that haven't done anything in a century bad. 
Um, what what do you think about the Ducks, bud? Um, I think I would have them slightly ahead of AM just because they, they recruit on a similar level, right? They're both really committed to recruiting at the highest level, like they're all in, you know, so to speak. But their path is easier as long as USC is not ascending back to what USC, you know, could be. So if you give me equal talent and an easier path, I'm I'm, I'm going to go ahead and take, you know, the, the easier path there. But they they seem kind of on that A&M, Notre Dame level, and I think Penn State may be a step behind for me. All right, one last one. Homer from the top rope. Anybody seen North Carolina getting this thing done? Oh. <laughs> I had them no. in my top 10. Yeah. They they'd could, be in my top 10. They they absolutely can have a incredibly momentous heartbreaking loss in the college football playoff semifinals. You know, they they can come in and really like it might be Sam Howell, it might be Drake May. They can really push uh, a team that is uh, probably just a, a little bit bigger and, uh, and and can mash them or an Alabama type or something like that. But there's, there's got to be a surprise in here though somewhere, isn't there? Like, or is it just impossible? Well, some of the su- I was thinking because uh, it wasn't that long ago, BC, uh, TCU and Baylor were just left out and like on the verge of playing for a title. And the Big Twelve for me was the hardest team to pick. As much as I like Matt Campbell, I think Iowa State is the obvious answer, and yet. I don't know if they're going to have the dudes to get it done. Like when we're talking about blue chip ratio, I don't know. The big 12 for me was the hardest one to determine, not Oklahoma, not Texas. Who is your team? And I think you make a case for three or four teams. And I think Iowa state is the obvious answer, but I didn't have them at the top of any list. Recruiting wise, there's nobody that's even three recruiting classes away in the big 12. Like yeah. it's all theoretical. Like you would need to have four really good classes starting right now. Like nobody even has one that they put together other than Texas, Oklahoma. Yeah, I feel like part of the problem for me too, when I was like considering Big 12 teams, like you mentioned Iowa State, is Matt Campbell still there by the time, if if Iowa State starts trending towards where it's a legit national title contender, is Matt Campbell still around considering how he's already getting NFL interest now? People were like giving him the Michigan job before Harbaugh was even fired, that kind of stuff. So I have a hard time seeing him still there if that's the case. Tweet him at for, uh, Tom Fornelli because last time he, we, we mentioned Matt Campbell maybe leaving it was uh, we, he, he got lit stay up. in Ames. <laughs> he should stay there. Stay. Ames is a wonderful place. It's a wonderful school. Beautiful campus. I'm just talking about what those evil people outside of Ames are saying. Mm. Could Washington do it? I don't think that I'm there now, but the the next step when it's like when you're looking for a surprise team, it was like, okay, so let's back up off of, you know, 1992. Uh, and let's also consider Washington has been to a uh, college football playoff. Again, they, they fall into that Michigan state, Washington. They have had times where, you know, they can recruit. Like I, I don't know <clears throat> off the top of my head about the entire recruiting classes uh, or the makeups of these rosters, but they at least have, playmakers like you've we've seen them get five-star players and high-level players they've turned out nfl draft picks could washington put it together and be that surprise team they could in theory but i think when you look at the pac-12 and the way the teams are recruiting out there right now it's oregon and usc Mm -hmm. like and oregon really is kind of separating itself from everybody else even further particularly in the north and usc is still usc and it's like until the rest of that conference kind of jumps on the recruiting train the same way that mario cristobal's brought it to oregon in the same way usc's kind of always naturally just work because of what it is 
I have a really difficult time picking any other Pac-12 team besides those two. I would agree with that. Um, Washington has recruited really well before. Uh, like you know, they've, they've had some classes that they've had more four and five stars than two and three stars. Uh, unfortunately, this year was the best year in the state of Washington we've seen in a long, long time, and they did not do very well as oh, far as you know keeping those elite yeah. level kids. Now, maybe that was unrealistic, right? Like those those are like top ten national type kids. So maybe it's not realistic to think Washington can keep those guys home. Um, but I, I do believe it, it's very difficult for Washington to rise up to that playoff level if Oregon is also humming on the recruiting trail. I think you kind of need it to be one or the other because if you're going to make a case for one of those two schools to come out of the Pacific Northwest, they need to get the vast majority of the best players in that region because they're going to have to go out of state for most of their kids anyway. But you need to be able to clean up your own backyard. So I don't think you can really have those two schools dominating at, at the same time, if that makes sense. And Oregon's clearly ahead right now. So to review, uh, since 19, we've decided the modern era since 1992. That means that our modern era national champions are Alabama, Auburn, Clemson, Florida, Florida State, LSU, Miami, Michigan, Nebraska, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, and USC. We have agreed that Georgia is the overwhelming pick as the next team to win a first title of the modern era. Notre Dame also getting a lot of love. Penn State out here. Oregon and Texas A&M, uh, a little bit of Wisconsin uh, love as well, and Washington needs a, needs a dip from Oregon if it wants to be able to get it done. Make sure that you're subscribed to the Cover 3 Podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow and stream us on Spotify. We've got Spotify playlists of all the spring gleaning episodes, so if you want to be able to catch up on some of our thoughts all across the country, maybe it's your rival, maybe it's someone you're playing in the non-con, maybe you want to learn about the rest of your division, Spotify playlists right there, and of course, you can just go back and find the episodes in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow him on Twitter at Tom Renaud. You can follow him at Danny Renaud. Follow him at Bud Elliott 3. Follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Thank you very much. shining light Sarajevo and they needed to kill that light from producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2 U2 they represent a personification of our resistance the Hollywood reporter hails kiss the future moving and inspirational kiss the future viva Sarajevo kiss the future new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus go to Paramount Plus to try it free terms apply